welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by my old friend, Liz Economy. I should, in full disclosure, say not only she's an old friend, she is a recently retired director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. She is currently senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, as well as a senior advisor on China at the U.S. Department of Commerce. She is here in her, in her capacity as the author of a recent book, The World According to China, which I have in front of me and hopefully you can all see. It is a delightful, wide-ranging read. And those of you who haven't read it yet and are interested in China's foreign policy and its view of the world really must read it. It is absolutely on the must-read list. Um, what's fascinating in, about the book, Liz, is it's so broad ranging. There's so, I mean, the footnotes go on for pages and pages. The interviews that you have are too numerous to count. How long were you working on the book and what kind of gave you the idea of writing a book, which really there's not a ton of literature of this kind on China? Well, first of all, thank you so much, Steve, for hosting me. It's really a pleasure to do this with you, of course. Uh, and also as a former, it's one of the sad things about my joining the Commerce Department, which otherwise has been a great treat for me, is that I had to resign my position as, as a board member uh, from the National Committee. But that being said, um, in terms of the book, uh, you know, look, it's, it's one of those books where it's always percolating, right, in your mind. I mean, I'm always collecting information about sort of China's foreign policy, China on the global stage. So to some extent, you're writing this type of book for your entire career, right? Because it doesn't just start when you kind of start putting the, the pen to paper. Um, you know, I just had come out with um, an earlier book, The Third Revolution, um, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State in 2018. And that book really focused primarily on China's domestic politics and have a little bit about China's foreign policy. Um, and I think that in part was why, you know, I, I felt as though I hadn't really explored China's foreign policy, its role on the global stage uh, very fully. So in some ways, it's a companion volume uh, to, to that book. But also, uh, I have to say, I think um, part of the reason what that made me sort of write the book was um, during the Trump administration, right? So thinking back to 2017, especially into early 2018, there was a lot of talk about China um, supplanting the United States as the world's sort of most important global power because the Trump administration was withdrawing the United States from a number of international organizations and institutions and regimes. And so sort of this idea that China was gonna step up and, and fill the vacuum and lead. And I was kind of thinking, you know, is that actually going to be the case? You know, and so I, I wanted to explore that particular issue. There were also a number of debates swirling around within the China field that, that made me think about the need to write something to answer questions for myself. 
you know, things like, is China trying to export its model? Right? That became a big issue in the wake of Xi Jinping's uh, 2017 uh, 19th Party Congress speech when he talked about China having a model that other countries could emulate. And I think the other big question for me that is out there and has been out there is, you know, is China a system, in the old words of, of Sam Kim, you know, one of the great sort of China political scientists, is China a system maintainer? Is it a reformer or is it a system revolutionary, right? What is it that China's trying to do? And I think a lot of people, you know, had it in their heads that China has benefited from the international system for the past, you know, seven decades. And why would it want to upend uh, the current international system? And so I, I think these are the kinds of questions that sort of impelled me to, to you know, sit down and, and, and write the book and answer the questions for myself. And how long did you work on it? It seems incredibly, it's not a long book, yet its footnotes take up almost a fifth of the pages. Well, so, okay, I am pretty compulsive about my footnotes. And, and, and in part, that's because um, you know, I believe in giving credit where credit is due. And so, you know, when I'm sourcing something or I'm citing someone or I'm using someone else's information, I want to make sure to give that, that person credit for it. Um, but again, you know, the material that I collect and that I work on can sit with me for a long time. So there's not really one starting point for it. But I guess if I really dated it, I, I really truly started working on it in, you know, sort of 2017 into 2018 is when I really started working on it and then very, really worked on it in 2019 and 2020. I, of course, love the footnote where you properly cite Robert Zellick's speech at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Gala right. in right. 2005. Many don't properly cite it, but you you had the absolute right. <laughs> the, um, the elephant in the room today with respect to China is its behavior in terms of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They've been trying to work, walk a very fine line and have not been doing a great job in my view. So how does that behavior fit into your view of China's view of the world? Yeah, so I think, um, look, one thing that we've seen very clearly over the past um, few decades and in particular since 2014, I mean, really since the fall of the Soviet Union and then in particular since 2014 when, when uh, Russia uh, annexed Crimea, um, is that you know, the Russia-China partnership has only grown stronger. Uh, and you know, they had traditionally worked together a lot of the United Nations, um, you know, sharing some similar views supposedly around sovereignty, for example. Um, but we've seen them in recent years really partnering in ways that we had it. I mean, the joint military exercises, you know, working very closely in the United Nations on issues like human rights and internet governance to try to transform norms and, and, and values. And we saw a little bit of that um, ambition, I think, uh, during the Olympics when Xi Jinping and Putin, you know, had the joint statement about sort of revisiting the current rules of the international order and the importance of that. Um, I mean, look, the two leaders said, right, in the meeting, they had something beyond an alliance. I think that suggests something pretty significant. And if you look back to 2019, when Xi Jinping was visiting Moscow, he said that Putin was his best friend in the international community. He doesn't say that kind of thing lightly. Um, so I think the signals were all there um, that this was a relationship uh, that China you know, values, that Xi Jinping values. Um, the economic relationship trade investment actually hadn't um, developed as rapidly or as deeply, I think, certainly as the Russians would have liked. 
I think they thought that as their political relationship uh, grew that they were gonna get a lot more in terms of investment than they actually had. But there was a pretty significant uptick over the past year, year and a half. I think it stands at about 150 billion at this point. Um, so not inconsequential, but obviously pales in comparison, for example, to the US-China uh, trade relationship. Um, so, you know, trade is, is growing, uh, investment is growing, again, slowly. Um, strong partnership around values, I think strong partnership in, in sort of opposition to the current liberal international order. Um, and again, growing military relationship. Um, and I, the last point I'll make is I think, you know, there has been, a, oh, and I guess I should have mentioned, of course, that Russia, you know, traditionally has been an important supplier of arms uh, to China as well. Um, so, but I, I think, um, you know, there had been a hope maybe uh, that China would take a step back in this case, um, but you know it abstained in the United Nations Security Council. Um, but we just saw that it it supported Russia in denying and uh, voting against a, a human rights investigation in the UN Human Rights Council. So, you know, for the moment, I think um, you know China has declared its um, you know that its partnership in in essence has declared that its partnership with Russia. Um, is supersedes anything else, um, even totally as good. you suggest it's trying to walk this fine line of yeah. saying we should have negotiations and Ukraine is a sovereign country. Yes, I mean, Wang Yi did restate Chinese traditional policy of sovereignty and territorial integrity, and he said including Ukraine, which kind of was the strongest statement the Chinese made, and, and Xi Jinping did call Putin to tell him to negotiate a settlement. So clearly there's discomfort. I think the Chinese thought about what the Russians were going to do the way, as if they were Chinese. The Chinese are much more practical and don't invade willy-nilly the way the Russians do. I think up till literally the day before the invasion, I was having conversations with senior people in China, the think tank world and the government in academic, academics, and they were saying they're not going to invade. And I was saying, you got to look at what's going on. They're yeah. going to invade. And it struck me that they really were, you. the China would have bluffed, gotten what they had gotten, what, what they could get, and then went home. Is that, do you think that's what happened? Or do you think they knew that Russia was going to invade, that in, you know, at the beginning of the Olympics, they gave Putin a wink and a nod? I, I would find it hard to believe, um, again, that given the relationship between Putin and Xi that has developed, you know, over the past decade or so, that uh, Putin was not upfront uh, with Xi Jinping about his intentions. Now, he may not have said, he may have said initially, you know, that he was just going to, uh, you know, uh, sort of declare the um, you know, breakaway provinces, or he may not have said, I'm going all the way to Kiev. So they may have been surprised by the extent of the invasion. Um, but I, again, would find it very surprising. I certainly don't know, but I would find it very surprising that in fact, there was no, um, no heads up. It may be, it may well be that through the political ranks, through the think tanks, you know, widely, that, that this was not widely known. Um, that this was reserved for, you know, the very uh, top echelon of the Chinese elite. But again, it, it would be surprising to me if there had not been any signal from, from Putin to Xi. Yeah. The book talks about, you know, 
soft power in different in different places. How do you think China's behavior with respect to Ukraine is going to affect their image globally? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so far um, it, it, it's all on the on the downside, right? Um, I, I think it's it's certainly not. I mean, given that, for example, you know, Kenya is representing you know Africa, you know, in the in the United Nations basically said, you know, this is wrong, right? We do not support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's hard to see that they're going to be looking at, at sort of China's attempts to, as you know, find that that middle line to navigate, you know, to, to walk the tightrope um, as, you know, sort of somehow supportive of, of growing Chinese soft power. I think the problem for, to be frank, I think that the bigger issue for China's soft power is that I don't think Xi Jinping really understands what soft power is. Um, I think you know he has the sense that soft power can be sort of controlled and conducted from the government, uh, from the central government. Um, I always find it um, funny when he says you know that he wants Chinese diplomats to go out and create a narrative right that that uh, makes China more respectable and lovable and credible you know or just go out there and create a narrative to improve to enhance China's soft power because that's not how soft power works right you don't create a narrative right soft power is born organically right it's born of a nation's ideals its values it's, it can be its brands, right? It's culture. Um, and whether that's, you know, films or whether it's, you know, a soda pop, um, it can be all sorts of things um, that emanate though from, from really from civil society and, and, and not so much from the government. And I think um, Xi Jinping, I don't think appreciates that that is what soft power is. Um, he fundamentally so, believes, but Liz, he fundamentally believes, you know, that they have a great society that they're providing for the people and that the story is not being told well globally. So that's what he's telling the, you know, that's what he's telling his diplomats. But I um, think, I think the problem is that, you know, after, you know, he's been in power for 10 years, right? And people can see what's going on in China. People can see Chinese foreign policy. They can see the coercive nature of China's behavior during the pandemic, right? The way that China treats Australia, boycotting their goods, you know, because Australia called for an investigation of COVID or, you know, saying, if you don't thank us enough, we're not going to provide you with PPE or whatever it is. I think, again, what, what Xi Jinping doesn't appreciate is that you can't create the narrative people, there, there's a record on the ground. What people look at really are China's actions on the ground. And I think that's, that's the mistake here. You know, that's the mistake. I would argue that, you know, the pandemic policy, so the, the sacrifice of kind of mobility and freedom in exchange for safety and 900,000, you know, if the equivalent in China, they would have had 3.6 million deaths in China if they had the same, ratio of deaths that we did. So he would argue, and I think I would argue, that it was a successful policy, not a failure, that it was the okay. United States. I mean, it, okay, um, wait, Steve, first of all, I didn't say that China failed on the pandemic. What I was talking about was Chinese diplomacy around the pandemic. I think the China story in terms of the trade-off they made between, you know, control and, and saving lives I mean, that is, a, that is a great story. I mean, saving all those lives is a great story. Uh, the problem is that, that when they went out, 
right? And their diplomacy toward other countries is not a great story, actually. And so I think that's where they manage, and I, this is a point I make in the book, to turn what should have been a major diplomatic win into a diplomatic debacle. And that's why you see, you know, all the holes around the world saying they have very little trust in Xi Jinping and, you know, countries in Asia don't want China as a regional leader. And so I think that's, that's the problem. You know, wolf warrior diplomats, it's not how China managed the pandemic internally that is the source of weak soft power. It's how China dealt with other countries around the pandemic. That's the, that's the source for, of its weak notes. soft power. As the book notes, Western countries and Japan have lost faith in China's governance. Uh, developing countries, Africa, those in Southeast Asia actually continue to have faith in Chinese governance. So, you know, in terms of when you use that polling data, that you look at polling data as, we, as you look at kind of UN resolutions, that there are many more countries that back the Chinese than back the United States. So we need to we need to be careful. Okay, we do, and I'll just I'll just say what the book does note is that that's largely true in Africa, with some differences among different countries. It's not true in Southeast Asia, actually. Uh, countries in Southeast Asia would like Japan. They would like Japan more than they want the U.S. or China, and they definitely don't want China. Even Cambodia has about 50, more than 50% of its people saying they don't want China as a regional leader. So there are really good, there are really good polls that come out um, from Southeast Asia around this. And yeah, you can look and at the most recent one as well. The, uh, the you, you talk about the great reju rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which Xi Jinping obviously talks about. Should we, should a listener think about that the way we think about Make America, make America great again, that the Trump make America great again is to some degree the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. How should the viewers think about that? Well, I think the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, what's interesting about it, it has, I think it's very different actually from, from make America great again. I think because the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation has both a, a domestic component and an international component. And the domestic component is really you know, as Xi Jinping defines it, things like, you know, having a robust Chinese Communist Party, right, that's free of corruption at the forefront of the political system. It's, you know, doubling GDP per capita, you know, between 2010 and 2020, and then again, you know, by 2035. It's um, having a People's Liberation Army that's capable of, as he puts it, fighting and winning wars. These are kind of domestic, you know, self-strengthening things that it has, but it also has a very active, right, proactive and um, reform, if you want to put it, I would say revolutionary, transformative energy around foreign policy. And, you know, it, it's, and I talk about it around, you know, five dimensions. You know, first is really redrawing the map of the Asia Pacific, right, so that China realizes its sovereignty claims. You know, there's a, I think, an energy behind pushing the United States out as the sort of dominant power in Asia, dominant security power in Asia, right? So Asia is for Asians to govern. Um, I think the Belt and Road Initiative, right, is a mechanism for spreading Chinese influence. It's not just, it moved well beyond just a hard infrastructure connectivity plan, right? There's the Digital Silk Road, the Health Silk Road, the Polar Silk Road, mm -hmm. uh, China's first military logistics base in Djibouti. Um, you know, there's a political element to the uh, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. 
Um, then I think China has a kind of transformative vision about the global economy and its place within the global economy and how it wants to operate, you know, defined by Xi Jinping's dual circulation theory, uh, which is, you know, in essence, making China more self-sufficient, still being integrated into the global economy, but refining that engagement, you know, so certainly exporting, but importing selectively, importing capital and know-how much more selectively, and ensuring that, you know, companies, multinationals are, remain dependent um, on China as part of, for some part of their supply chains. And then finally, it's about transforming norms and values in global governance institutions, uh, where China, you know, has been very active and increasingly active. I don't think that the, the Make America Great Again had that kind of transformative, you know, international vision. Um, there was definitely some transformation in terms of the U.S. role on the global stage pulling out, but I don't think there was a, a vision for what is the international community, the international system look like, um, you know, that came out of Make America Great Again. The digital Silk Road, how does kind of, you know, and obviously Alibaba and Tencent are playing a big role in the rollout of the digital Silk Road. How do we think about the crackdowns on Ali and Tencent domestically in China versus the support that they, they should be given for the digital Silk Road? What's going on in China to explain the dichotomy in policy? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, domestically, there are probably a couple of different reasons for the crackdown. Um, I think, you know, on, on the, you know, one, on the one hand, there are probably some legitimate uh, concerns over uh, monopoly um, uh, behavior, monopolistic behavior by some of these companies. Um, I think there's also a concern that these companies uh, have, um, you know, that a lot of capital and a lot of information, um, you know, flow through these companies that the Chinese government doesn't have access to directly. And I think that's something we've seen under Xi Jinping over the past decade is just the degree to which he wants to control the information that comes in and goes out of the country or that the Chinese people have access to, you know, is a much more repressive regime than uh, what has come before. So I think having private companies, uh, you know, have control over this kind of information and capital in ways that the Chinese government really wasn't touching, I think was challenging for Xi Jinping. There may also have been, uh, you know, an element there where uh, some of the CEOs of these companies, you know, like Jack Ma, offered some mild criticism, which clearly wasn't welcomed, uh, right, in public fora, clearly wasn't welcomed by uh, the Chinese government. And um, I think the timing of, you know, pulling the ant IPO suggests that maybe, you know, his remarks at uh, that conference, um, you know, had something to do with, with the failure of that to, to go through. So um, I think, you know, these, some of these tech, um, entrepreneurs, you know, they're globally very, they're well known, they're very attractive, um, you know, they, they've attained a kind of superstar status. And it's also possible that Xi Jinping isn't really interested in having any other Chinese citizen kind of rival uh, Xi Jinping. And I think that probably the extent to which some of these people, you know, have followings inside the country, right, and are admired inside the country, may also have been 
threatening uh, to Xi Jinping. So I think there are probably a variety of reasons for why um, he wanted to clip their wings. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want to use them, right? And I think progressively we've seen, again, over the past decade that the party has intruded more and more into private Chinese companies, you know, enhancing the role of the party committees or, um, you know, at the one moment, uh, you know, in Hangzhou where they sent in all these uh, officials uh, into the tech companies to make sure that what they were doing was aligning with, you know, government um, policy uh, was in the best interest of the government. I think um, it doesn't mean that he doesn't want to use them um, and using them is something which she can do for the digital Silk Road. Uh, but it, it does mean that he doesn't want them, you know, presenting him with any other kinds of, of domestic uh, political or economic challenges. Interesting. The book, you're one of the great kind of experts on environment in China. The book was written before China stopped financing coal plants outside of China. Yep. But does that change your view at all? Um, change my view of, of what exactly? Of the BRI and the environment? Well, I mean, it's it's an important step. And it's one that, you know, was clamored for by a lot of people uh, uh, before China decided to do it. Uh, so it's great um, that China isn't um, exporting coal-fired power plants through the Belt and Road. I mean, I think it is finishing up the ones that it started. And it's not clear that ones that were already pledged aren't going to be, you know, finished. So uh, that's part. That part is remains unclear. It's also the case that many of those coal-fired power plants were being pulled by countries uh, before uh, China decided to announce that uh, they were not going to do this anymore. So there's a little bit of a push and a pull here uh, on on this front, I would say. Um, but the real issue is is not just about the coal-fired power plants. It's about doing environmental impact assessments um, before the projects. Uh, and so that's part of the problem is that they don't, a lot of Chinese companies don't tend to do environmental or social impact assessments. And so that's, you know, when you see protests around Belt and Road projects, you know, it could be around mines, for example, not necessarily around coal-fired power plants. The example that I provide in the book in Kenya is around coal-fired power plant, but there are many other protests, um, environmental protests that are not about the coal-fired power plants. There's a great section on semiconductors in the book, which is, and it quotes our friend Jimmy Goodrich and has a lot of great analysis of it. Should, I guess I don't want to get into US government policy, but what, will China succeed in state funding of the semiconductor industry? The book points out the enormous failures that have occurred up till now, and they won't get close to their goals of domestic um, production. So should we sometimes just shrug and say, eh, they want to waste their money, let them waste their money? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think we can control how they spend their money anyway. So we can, we can shrug and say, spend away. Sure, we can do that. I mean, I, I don't think what we say about the money that they're spending is going to have any impact well, on, on how they spend us it. To, I didn't want to get into US policy, but it's caused us to allocate 50 billion to to semiconductor industry in the United States. Well, I mean, so they're I mean, kind of learning frank, from their model, which in my view didn't work. Right. I, I think I think I think it's a different issue. I think um, you know one of the things that uh, COVID I think really brought to the fore uh, for uh, the U.S. 
is the importance of supply chain resiliency and redundancy. Um, and we don't you know, want to be dependent on other countries for core, you know, um, core commodities, core uh, technologies, things that are essential to our economic and national security. And so I think the semiconductor issue is, is in many respects less about what China is doing and more about trying to ensure that, you know, we have our own capacity, you know, because we, you know, it's, it's, it's not like China is the, is the big threat here, right, in this regard right now. It's, it's that we ourselves don't really have a robust semiconductor manufacturing capability. And so um, we have almost known, not even just no robust, not a robust one. So I think that's, that is actually what um, has prompted um, the CHIPS Act and uh, this effort you know, to support advanced manufacturing in the United States. We have just touched on what is in this wonderful book, The World According to China by Liz Economy, which for those of you who are interested in China's view of the world, China's foreign policy, and what it means for all of us is a must read. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate thank, it. Thanks so much, Steve. I enjoyed the conversation. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.